listen You can hear their hearts beating Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves County Radio. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's show, an exclusive special on homelessness and displacement as we go to Los Angeles County, California, and the Poor People's Campaign public hearing on homelessness in Pacoima, California. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves County Radio. You can hear when the Shines bright, the lone through air in the black of the night. You can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm-hmm. And you know, when come a cunny blows to the bar who drum, it's the warriors who are marching mm-hmm. down the mountain. Mm-hmm. Because history ain't no. In the first segment of today's show here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio, we go to the heart of the Tongva Gabarino Nation in Los Angeles, California, to discuss indigenous homelessness and displacement and mental health. It's estimated the Native American urban population in Los Angeles County is a little over 171,000 people, or approximately 1.6% of the entire Los Angeles County population of just over 10 million people. Our guest for this segment of the show is an appointed commissioner for the Los Angeles City American Indian Commission. She is a physician specialist at the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health and a board member of the United American Indian Involvement Center in downtown Los Angeles, California. Dr. Andrea Garcia is a member of the Mandan Hidatsa Arikwad Nation, and I spoke with her on indigenous homelessness and displacement in Los Angeles, California. I'll start by saying that we don't really know the true scope of the problem. When it comes to using numbers that are put out by the Los Angeles Homelessness Services Authority, or LASA, so LASA does the annual Greater LA Homelessness Count. And what we discovered when we embarked on this work is that the definition that they use of American Indian Alaska Native is that of American Indian Alaska Native alone. So this totally... Um, cuts out anybody who identifies as Native plus another race or Native plus Hispanic, which you might imagine is quite high in a place like Los Angeles. So with that caveat, the 2018 count said that there were 566 homeless Native Americans in all of LA County with our 171,000 people identifying as American Indian Alaska Natives. We believe this to be extremely untrue. A, because it's such a small percentage of our own population. I think it's like 0.3% of the population. But we also know that our community um, have risk factors that put us more at risk for homelessness. And those include chronic disease, mental health illness, poverty, substance use. And so for all of those reasons, we think that our population is sorely undercounted. Additionally, I myself did a study uh, last year or the year before 
before on um, how natives access healthcare. And so, you know, mind you, our sampling wasn't the most rigorous, I guess. It was more of a convenient sample. But what, what we learned in that study is that our community, one of our every seven of our community members said that they were homeless. And we use the definition of living in a hotel, a shelter, or their vehicle. And then if you count those people who are couch surfing, um, one out of every five members of our community said that they were temporarily homeless. And so those numbers alone are significantly higher than what is captured by the greater LA homeless count. Andrea, what are some of the causal factors that lead to indigenous homelessness and displacement? And for our listeners, Explain what you mean by homelessness, because as you all know, for indigenous peoples, the concept of homelessness has multiple meanings. Absolutely, yeah. So what are some of the causal factors? So the the factors that are traditionally known by the mainstream system are sort of what I mentioned earlier, um, those people who have greater rates of chronic disease, um, mental health disparities, you know, who um, live in poverty, who have higher rates of substance use, like those are traditionally the, um, the quote, like well-accepted risk factors that you see in the literature. However, I think there's a lot more to that. I mean, you know, you look at our this moment in time and we see a lot of gentrification happening. We see LA's housing market just skyrocketing and so people are being pushed out of their communities. So that the external sort of economic factors put people at risk for that. Then you could take the social justice angle. I think for communities in Los Angeles, like we have this history of redlining in specific areas. Um, and so there are systemic factors that sort of push people um, into these situations. And then I would say that um, for Native people, so you mentioned this concept of like home can mean different things. Right. And so as a sort of blanket statement, I would say most Indigenous people have in common this connection to the land, right? Right. We have our traditional homelands where we, you know, we have our creation stories, we have our medicines that come from the land, we do our ceremonies there. And so that, in that sense, home is where our traditional homelands are. However, Native Americans, specifically in the U.S., have been pushed out and have been displaced since, you know, the 1400s. And so when we say home, like our home is so much more deeply rooted than that of just the four walls that we are currently living in. And when you think about our displacement, it is a very systematic way that policies have interacted all the way from allotment to assimilation to relocation um, right now that have displaced us systematically. So that's what, I think that's what we're trying to get out when we we mean home. Like not only are natives experiencing physical homelessness, but in a very profound cultural and spiritual sense, we are also feeling displaced and homeless because we're um, a lot of us are not in our traditional homelands. You know, 71% of Native live in urban areas. Um, and so that balance of home means many different things. But for the purpose of, like, this talk, like, yes, we, we are still <laughs> experiencing a lot of physical homelessness. And then one last thing that I'll tack on to that is this idea of, you know, the systematic sort of displacement of Native people also lends itself to um, trauma, right? It's very traumatizing and all of the policies that sort of followed after that created that intergenerational trauma 
that sort of made our families unable to parent in a traditional way or, or sort of broke up our communities. And, and that also set us up for um, economic exploitation and, you know, the things that we're seeing today, like the symptoms of that intergenerational trauma, which are the poverty and the high mental health disparities and the chronic disease. And so um, I think those are at the root of um, what Native homelessness is today. Andrea, when you talk about Indigenous homeless people and displaced Indigenous homeless people. Can you expand on that, uh, especially with the work that you directly do? Absolutely. Um, I started working at the American Indian Counseling Center about seven months ago, and it was immediately obvious. I mean, obviously, because I'm in a mental health setting, but it was very clear that a lot of my clients, patients, were homeless. I would say at least a third of them. And then and then when we started doing this homelessness work, we did one-on-one interviews with people currently experiencing homelessness. And when I asked them the simple question like, hey, can you introduce yourself? Tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, aside from mentioning what nation they were from, they would immediately go to their traumas. And it was so interesting. And the things that they would talk about were, well, you know, I was in the um, foster care system or I was adopted early on as a baby and this sort of led to A, B, C, and D. Or another person would be like, well, I grew up in a violent neighborhood and my family members, um, you know, were part of gang uh, activity. And um, this is what I saw and these were my traumas and that led to X, Y, Z. And so every single person pointed out how those experiences affected the current situation situation that they were in. It was really, I, I mean, I wasn't surprised by it, but um, it was really powerful and it was a real privilege to be able to hear their stories. Andrea, when talking about individual Indigenous homelessness and displacement, how does that factor into the larger Indigenous community as well as the system, the system of resources or lack of resources play into the work that you're doing? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. So um, the importance of community, I would say that the clients that I see at AICC, American Indian Counseling Center, have all made a very strong statement about the care that they receive there and the fact that it's culturally sensitive and the fact that they do have American Indian providers. And they're very protective of that space and protective of the people who get to see them. And I don't know if it makes a difference in terms of like their sort of retention in the mental health system, but anecdotally, I will say that having a sense of that cultural community has been very important to a lot of my clients. I would also say that um, referencing this study that we did again on access to care, um, what was really remarkable about that was that we asked people, well, where do you get your care? Like, do you use Medi-Cal here? Do you go to, like, county? What do you do? And an overwhelming amount of people mentioned that they would travel all the way to Alaska, Montana, New Mexico, you know, even the local Riverside counties, San Diego, to get culturally sensitive care. And to me, that's very telling. And so when I think about our current infrastructure for how we're serving our homeless community, um, you know, we have certain services like, you know, a lot of our organizations, UAII, AICC, TANIS, Red Circle Project, they have their sort of external referral networks. But what we also heard at our community forum on homelessness was that people wanted to see American Indian specific housing, Mm. whether that meant 
affordable housing, permanent supportive housing, some some sort of traditional, well, transitional housing. They wanted to see it specifically for them, for our community. And that wasn't a surprise given what we found in how people just access healthcare, right? Like you would think that it would be easier to go to like a county facility and be like, great, I'm going to get my checkup, but no. <laughs> so people felt really strongly about that. And that's what we, that's what we're seeing not only from the forum, but we saw in our subsequent, um, you know, one-on-one interview and, you know, in continuing conversations that we have. Andrea, you touched on the word traditional, and I was wondering, when we talk about health, there's that notion of cultural health, spiritual health, right, mental health. All these factors uh, regarding health interconnect and are interdependent upon each other, and, and all that ties into having these indigenous spaces when it comes to homeless indigenous and displaced indigenous peoples. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. um, So I would say, you know, going back to this like legacy of policies and systematic displacement and, you know, all of these things that created the um, inequities that we see today has built, unsurprisingly, a lot of mistrust by the community for sort of government run, et cetera, or, you know, whatever larger system. So that, that has built mistrust you know, reasonably so. And it's also created invisibility or a sense of not being heard or seen by, you know, society at large. And so when you have a place that is primarily staffed and run by Native people, um, it creates a sense of inclusion and visibility, at least amongst each other. And so that mistrust automatically sort of slides away. But also, you know, so I'm a physician by training, and I know things that contribute to chronic disease, right? And they're, you know, that I know the things that were taught in school. But I also know as a Native physician that, to me, I firmly believe that culture is the root of everything, is the root of health. And so once people are connected to their culture, you know, there's studies to back it to say that, oh, you know, um, that people are more resilient when they're connected to their community, when they're connected to their traditional culture. And so for me, I think that makes the, the biggest argument and why we need Native specific spaces, because you have a population of individuals who've experienced all kinds of different traumas, right? And they just want to be a part of a community and they want to start their healing process. And in, in our eyes, I think that begins with culture and being um, held by your community um, and supported by your community and not having to deal with all of the things that happen in sort of mainstream shelters. So like I've heard stories of um, people who couldn't smudge in the morning or people whose medicines and traditional medicines and items are stolen at these other places. Not to say that that wouldn't happen right. at a native shelter, you know what I'm saying? But right. but at least we have the um, the background and, and um, sort of we share the same worldview. So I think that's why those spaces are particularly important. And you're listening to an exclusive interview with Dr. Andrea Garcia here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. She is speaking on indigenous homelessness and displacement in the heart of the Tongva Gabarino Nation in Los Angeles County, California. And now back to the interview. And would it be fair to say that non-Indigenous um, services or spaces, if you will, would more than likely compound this, the trauma? Um, I mean, that's a 
loaded question because I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I think it depends on where people are at in their identity, right? right? So right. I don't want to put words in everyone's mouth, but I also heard from other people who were like, you know what, I just want somewhere to stay and right. I don't care where it is. Like, I just need a place to stay. So it's sort of like that emergent need. That being said, like a lot of places in general or, you know, you hear some of the horror stories of shelters um, where bad things happen. And, and a lot of people that we talked to expressed a feeling of not being safe. Um, one person even said, well, you could stay in a shelter or you could stay on the streets. And sometimes I'd rather stay on the streets because it's safer. So in a sense, maybe they could compound the trauma. Um, you know, if a person is particularly into their identity and something happens to their traditional stuff or they're told, no, you can't be who you are. Sure, that would definitely compound the trauma. But what we're saying is if that they're in a native space, maybe the likelihood of those misunderstandings is a lot lower. Andrea, given the work that you do and all the organizations that you're affiliated with, is there enough resources, and I almost hate to use that word, is there enough resources available to adequately perform the work that you're doing to address the issue of indigenous homelessness and displacement in Los Angeles County? I would say in theory, you know, there's a lot of money being going into homelessness, but what we're trying to do in trying to uplift the stories of our Native community, we have yet to discover those resources. And I will be fair. Um, I will be fair and say that, you know, I again, I've been at my county job, right, for seven months. And so when we asked for um, resources to help put on the community forum, you know, it was like the answer was yes. Like, here you go, <laughs> you know, here, here you go. So that's a small thing. But as we continue to have conversations with other sort of entities that um, organize around homelessness, I find that accessing some of those resources is harder than I thought. Um, and I'll give you an example. So there are a lot of special populations, quote unquote, that are considered by LASA. And so um, some of those populations are transitional age youth, um, LGBTQ, aging adults. And then most recently, there was um, a committee on Black people experiencing homelessness which is awesome um, because we know that community makes up 9% of the population, but 40% of the homeless population. So much, much needed. And then I learned that um, there were a couple of staff members who, from LASA who were um, sort of dedicated to that ad hoc committee. Um, and I was like, oh, that's cool. Great. Like, you know, maybe we can get some of the same help. But it turns out that um, that particular committee, like they had to write a bunch of grants and then they hired a consultant and then that helped sort of get the LASA staffing. And so I thought it would be easy to just be like, hey, we're here. You know, this is a problem. We don't know how bad it is. Can you help us? <laughs> But the answer was like, oh, well, um, well, you know, they hired a consultant and they wrote for all of these things. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the other message that I got was that, well, you know, you guys need to make noise. And what they meant by that was that we needed to, as a community, start organizing and go to all of these various commission meetings on homelessness and sort of state our case, which I understand, but it's also kind of frustrating when um, – you have all of these other special populations who basically went through the same motions, but I'm like, why do we have to jump through all these hoops? Like, you know, we're telling you this is a problem. We're lifting up the stories. We're doing the groundwork ourselves. Why does it have to be so hard? <laughs> <laughs> 
to get you to understand, especially when it comes to indigenous health. You know, like people aren't even aware of like these homelands that they're sitting on and standing right. on. So yeah, so I, I am frustrated, but I know that it's part of the process. Andrea, when we talk about intergenerational homelessness of indigenous peoples in L.A. County, do you feel the problem has gotten better or has it actually gotten worse or has it remained the same? I don't have data in front of me to back that up, but I'm just going to take a leap of faith and say, based on the trends of increasing poverty, of increasing gentrification, particularly in tribal, um, in urban areas, but even in tribal areas, I heard there's um, problems with homelessness. And honestly, like largely misclassification and data, I'm assuming that it's getting worse, which is unfortunate, like an unfortunate thing to say. Andrea, I know back in 2017, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights traveled throughout the United States and indigenous communities, and the report was published in June, July of 2018. And in that report, it indicated that the poverty rate among American Indians and Alaska Natives was about 26.2%, the highest compared to any other quote-unquote ethnic group. And when we talk about indigenous homelessness and displacement in urban metropolitan areas, I was just curious in the work that you do, do we see similar patterns in other say, urban areas that share a similar history, such as with uh, Los Angeles County. And by that, I mean, like Los Angeles County had back in the late 1940s, early 1970s, the Bureau of Indian Affairs Field Relocation Office, and that was part of this federal program, right, Operation Relocation to intentionally move indigenous peoples from, quote-unquote, the reservation into the city. And so cities that have a large urban native population probably had a Bureau of Indian Affairs field relocation office. So are there parallels with other urban cities that have large Native American populations? Yeah, so um, I will say that in working with Colleen Echo Hawk, who's the executive director of the Chief Seattle Club, which is like a sort of homeless services or day shelter, I think, in um, downtown Seattle. Uh-huh. Um, I know a lot of her work because she's come out to L.A. to sort of help us, right, and give us a lowdown on what they're doing. But, um, but yeah, if, if you go to Seattle and you walk the street, Native homelessness is really visible, unfortunately. Um, you do see a lot of our relatives on the street. But what was interesting as far as, like, their numbers, you know, obviously so we have a huge population here. Um, I don't know what the exact number of their population is, but... Um, what she found initially was, you know, the same thing that's happening here is an undercount. And so when she went and started working with their local agency that counts um, homeless people, the number of homeless natives doubled percentage by percentage of the population. And so I think at one point, like they said, homelessness improved for natives and they, they only represent 3% of the population. Well, actually, I think it was like 6% of the population for a certain year. So yeah, I would say that these other urban communities are probably facing a lot of the same things that we're seeing in LA. But again, like 
what's the extent of the problem? Like, what definition are they using in these other places? We don't know. And for LA specifically, just to reference your um, 26% poverty figure that you threw out. So in 2017, 35% of our native children um, were part of households that were um, below the federal poverty level. So that's more than a third of our native children, which is insane. And then when you look at families, it's about 20% of families that were below the poverty level. So one in every five families, which is obscenely high, which is compared to only 6% of non-Hispanic white families. So yeah, like it's bad and the, the figures vary, but um, it's particularly bad here in Los Angeles. And you're listening to an exclusive interview with Dr. Andrea Garcia. She's uh, speaking on indigenous homelessness and displacement in Los Angeles, California. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. We're going to take a short break and come right back. I walk by room every day and cry a prayer. I still light the candles hoping she'll find her way When I search the world I will find you soon Just know that I will never give up on you Somebody took away Kadisha Somebody tore my heart Stop this screaming, my life is unclear I still hear her voice, and her laughter is so clear I pray she is The song Khadija by Tracy Lee Nelson, here on American Indian Airwaves, Cowdy Radio. In the second segment of today's show, we go back to our interview with Dr. Andrea Garcia. She is an appointed commissioner for the Los Angeles City American Indian Commission, a physician specialist for the Los Angeles Department of Mental Health, and a board member of the United American Indian Involvement. We're speaking with Dr. Andrea Garcia regarding indigenous homelessness and displacement within Los Angeles County, California. And now, back to the interview. Andrea, in 2016, it was estimated that the indigenous unemployment was about 12% compared to the national average of 5.8%. And I was curious with the work that you do regarding displaced and homeless indigenous peoples, are there any type of job training programs for folks that will help economically stabilize them so they don't fall back into this cycle of homelessness or extreme poverty or displacement. And then in terms of the families or the homeless and displaced people, how many of those families have young children? Right. Yeah. So short answer to the last bit of your question was we 
don't know again until we have accurate data. But to answer the question before, so at the American Indian Counseling Center, there are case managers who help individuals with, you know, resume building, I guess, low finding jobs. They even offer them like interview clothing, things like that. So that type of work is going on. And I know some of our other organizations, I think, I believe TANF does some of the same work. Um, UAII similarly does similar work. But what's exciting about that, and I'm so glad you asked, is that um, UAII just secured a fairly large workforce development grant. And we have hired um, the director of that program. And we're trying to make um, a couple more hires to build up that department. But essentially, um, yeah, so when you think of workforce development programs, you know, there some of them have specific focuses. Some of them, um, you know, they also do more skills building. And so meeting the clients where they're at and sort of helping them with, again, some of that resume stuff, interviewing skills, et cetera, et cetera, but also connects them to specific training depending on what fields they're interested in. And so that, again, is just being uh, ramped up in our community. But, um, you know, we're also hoping to apply for another grant that has, what is it, the ability to invest, I guess sort of give like micro grants to promote entrepreneurialism (laughs) in the community (laughs) for small businesses. But the whole idea behind these is that um, we're working more upstream, right? Like we're on the prevention side. And so that is certainly probably the best long-term strategy moving forward to prevent homelessness. Yeah, and I was asking that question. And again, I'm referring back to the UN Special Rapporteur's report on extreme poverty and homelessness. And in the report, it it had indicated that one in four indigenous young people ages 16 to 24 are neither enrolled in school nor working. And, and, And hence, how does that factor into the demographics of Native homelessness and displacement in LA County? Is there any relationship or correlation when we talk about any predominant age demographic within the community? Mm, I see what you're saying. So we did have some limited data on the breakdown of age. I want to say we had a fairly decently uh, sized population of um, Native youth who were homeless, but that data didn't give their educational status. And when, and then, you know, similar for adults, but we, we don't have the breakdown of data that we would want. So yeah, we would want to know if, you know, these people got an education, but I will say anecdotally, again, from those interviews, you know, some people described their situation as like, sure, I completed school. And I also just fell on hard times because this right. happened and it forced me to move out of my home or I don't want to, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to sort of make those generalizations sure, like, sure. yes, education would help with the prevention and security hearing jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But I also want to be cautious or mindful of not sort of applying those stereotypes to the community because a lot of people were like, well, sure, I'm homeless, but I don't like using that word because, you know, this is what really happened and this is why I'm here. Andrea, when we talk about displaced Indigenous peoples and homelessness and mental health, I was curious, does food play a role? Does Indigenous peoples' traditional food system come into the equation, if you will, as part of that cultural nourishment in healing people. So I know at American Indian Counseling Center, they are starting or having the blessing of the garden, um, I think in the next week or two. And so the idea behind that is that sort of what you mentioned, like returning to our more traditional means of eating. And so not only is it providing nourishment, but it's also returning us 
to, um, you know, what we once did in terms of growing food. So I know that is an active effort there. UAII at some point had a community garden, but this was years ago. I would say in the broader sense, like, you know, when each of these organizations host their events, you know, food is always a part of whatever is going on, right? Like whether we have a meeting or a community gathering, it's food. I wouldn't say that what we serve is always the most traditional. And that's really hard to do when you have an area of more than 200 tribes um, to bring that. So, um, yeah, I can't say that I myself am doing anything specific to that, but I know that um, I do acknowledge the role that it plays. Uh, I just don't think we're quite there yet as a community and sort of systematizing, like bringing back our traditional foods. Well, and then too, that would require having the undeveloped space, if you will, to create those community cultural gardens to, you know, to plant traditional foods and and eventually harvest them. And I'm not sure, and maybe you can speak to this, you know, are those spaces even available for the few indigenous organizations that are providing the kind of services that you're talking about? So um, at UAII, no, like in the physical space that we're in now, no. I know that the gardens that they used to have were housed at the Autry here in Highland Park, but I, I think those have since fizzled out. And then as far as the garden at AICC, so there is some space, but again, that sort of takes, you know, like, mind you, this is a government agency. So. Right, right. <laughs> So it would take, like, dedication of staff members, resources, and I think at this point in time, one of our volunteers is actually spearheading that effort. I will, I do want to say, though, um, this Saturday, I was in San Inez at the Chumash Clinic and Tribal Hall, and so one of their doctors, one of my dear, dear um, rock star girlfriends, her name's Dr. Adachi Serrano, so she was trained in family medicine, but did an integrative medicine fellowship, and she specifically got a certificate in herbalism, and so... So all around the clinic and the tribal hall, um, they have medicinal plants. She takes on a tour of their medicinal plants. And then behind the tribal hall, they have several boxes for um, the community garden. And so I think they were growing like kale and broccoli, and I don't know what else is in there. But to me, like, that was a standard. And I feel like if, if all of our organizations could do what they're doing up there, it would be amazing. And she was just mentioning that not only is it a source of um, food and medicine for them, but they also have built a, a curriculum where they bring in the youth and then they'll have a cultural teaching as well. Mm-hmm. And they'll teach them how to say, you know, whatever plant it is in their language. And they'll talk about, you know, harvesting it in a more traditional sense. Yeah, it was just amazing. And I think that that would be our gold standard. Andrea, and coming back and talking about indigenous homelessness and displacement in LA County, you had like you had mentioned there was over 200 indigenous nations represented within Los Angeles County. I was curious in terms of the individual and the community and some of the indigenous organizations and the resources that are available and just the larger system structure, what do you feel needs to be done in order to ameliorate or slow down or stop indigenous homelessness and displacement 
in Los Angeles County? So lots of levels to that question. (laughs) I will start upstream and say that anytime we can invest efforts in prevention, that would be the key. And so again, referencing programs such as the Workforce Development Program um, that UAII is ramping up, um, and then other efforts, again, by agencies like TANF and EACC along the prevention to employ our people to educate them are always gold standard. From the community level, um, we had a focus group where we brought most, not all of our agencies to the table to be like, hey, what's everybody doing in this realm of homelessness? So we are trying to create like a visual, just sort of literally just mapping out like what each entity is doing, which would then hopefully spark a conversation of, okay, how can we be more better coordinated? Um, And not to say that our agencies are not already working together because they are, but we want to make it more public for everybody to know, you know, our clients to know as well how to access certain services. And that's just on the community level. I would also say that, you know, if we have this big idea of wanting to have Native-specific, permanent supportive housing, affordable housing, et cetera, I think we're also going to have to have a good conversation as a community and decide, well, how are we going to do that? Who's going to run it? You know, it's a great, (laughs) you know, I think it's really do think it's feasible to find the funding to be able to build something like that. But how are we as a community going to step up and work together to make sure that it's successful, to make sure that our relatives are housed? And so those are big conversations that we are still having and still need to have. But, you know, if any of our agencies are listening, like, we like, let's all get together again and, um, and, and talk about this um, and be strategic and intentional about our next steps as agencies and as a community. And then from the perspective of um, how we interact with the services that are out there that are non-native, like we definitely need to be developing more relationships with people who are already doing this work and who have been successful. Like we need to network and see how we can bring those services into our agencies and vice versa refer our people to those outside agencies. And then um, I would say our most sort of urgent or immediate need is like we're saying that this is a problem and we see it in our agencies um, and we at least see some of the data, but um, we don't know the quote true extent, right? Like people rely on counts and numbers to allocate resources. So we don't really know that number and we can't really advocate for those resources until we get the count right. And so I think that is the most immediate need that we have. Well, you mentioned count too, and and you mentioned identity earlier in our conversation. And so I can't help but think of, you know, who's being counted? Is it you know, Native folks that are members of federally recognized nations? Is it Indigenous people that are just, you know, maybe members of state recognized nations? Indigenous people that are not citizens of state or recognized nations? Indigenous peoples from, you know, elsewhere outside the politically defined borders of the United States that are homeless and displaced, you know, living in L.A. County? And so I, it was made me wonder how does treaties play a role or could they play a role in this and in, in say approaching like the federal housing authority and acquiring or negotiating an allotment of uh, property say low low income housing tract that could be a central um, kind of living corridor if you will to get homeless native american people off the streets and into the appropriate shelter to provide them services and begin a process of transition out of permanently staying out of homelessness 
hopefully? Yeah, it's a very complicated and loaded question. Um, yeah. I would say, so identity, insofar as it relates just to the count, um, mm-hmm. is all about self-identification. And so the American Indian alone is people who self-report, but we're wanting to change that definition to American Indian plus other races, and then including Hispanic ethnicity if possible. Um, so that is sort of, that sort of stands alone. And, and again, all of that language is around American Indian. Now, when you talk about using different statuses, so it depends on what sort of, what streams of funding you want to go for in um, securing the housing. So you're right, there are federal streams of money. And I know for a fact that um, HUD, HUD is the entity that LA County is following in terms of their definition of American Indian, and that is American Indian alone. So I think if you want to get into sort of the politics of like, yeah, we can house our federally recognized tribes. I think there might be a legal stance. I don't know, though. Um, I'm not 100% clear about that. However, there's also like other sources of um, money that go into this. And so it's complicated. And I think our community has different stances on how they want to define Native versus Indigenous um, for the purpose of housing our community. And I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that. Like, there are varying opinions. I am of the belief that we can't afford to to exclude people and we can't afford to um, sort of marginalize other communities. And so I think, I really truly believe that none of us are as strong as all of us. And whether you were from a state-recognized tribe or maybe your tribe status was terminated, like, to me, that shouldn't matter because as Native people, like, we, our sense of identity is all about relationships and so if, and, and our relationship to the land, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so I wouldn't personally want to be exclusive of people who, um, you know, were sort of assigned the status. <laughs> due to policy or due to colonization. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, it right. wasn't their fault. And if they um, identify as a Native American, then in my opinion, I think that should be good enough. Well, let me ask you this. In in talking about indigenous um, homelessness and displacement, and oftentimes we don't think about homelessness and extreme poverty as a, as a human rights or in the context of human rights. And I'll just refer back to one of the summary statements made by the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights and talking about, you know, indigenous peoples and, and, and his findings in the report. He says that the situation has also been compounded by paternalistic attitudes, which run directly counter to the approach reflected in international human rights law and standards, particularly the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which the U.S. government endorsed in 2010. And um, maybe your comments on that. And for our listeners, um, Native and non-Native listeners, uh, what can people do to help or what should they or what would you like to see them do? Sure. I would say that although it might seem like a small gesture, I think knowing the land that you're standing on is extremely important. And so, yeah, I I think it starts with that because once you get in the habit of like, let's say you're traveling and you like went to New York and you're like, oh, now I'm in the, the traditional homelands of the Lenape, it automatically 
sort of shifts people's thought, not only A, to recognize that um, Native people are still here, but also to recognize that those same Native people may not be in their traditional homelands. And I I think that's really, it's just new, um, it's just new altogether because we're, as Native people, we're used to not being part of the narrative or part of the story. Or if we are part of the story, it's, you know, somebody else's lens. And so I think that is very powerful as individuals to just get in the mindset of doing. But as institutions, I have a lot more (laughs) (laughs) suggestions. Well, what Um, would you recommend? And I think, like, you know, A, land acknowledgement is a beginning for an institution. But B, really reconciling and really understanding the history of your particular institution. And, like, were you responsible for the displacement of Native peoples in your local area? Like, how has your institution contributed to that? And if you are, and if you are willing to acknowledge that, like, how are you going to rectify it in whatever your field is? You know, so I, again, I'm working for L.A. County Department of Mental Health, which sits on Tongva land, Tongva territory. And so um, if I were that institution, I think I would want to know what are the numbers of Tongva people, like what are the numbers of Tongva people that are experiencing homelessness, not just Tongva people, but Native people in general. Because when you start to ask those questions, then you're like, oh, we really don't have the information. Like, let's find it and let's see what we can do to make things better. I think those would be the beginning things. Even just talking about Native people is a (laughs) (laughs) Andrea, we've been talking about Indigenous homelessness and displacement and the work that you do. And Again, to remind our listeners, the indigenous population of L.A. County is approximately 1.6% of the entire Los Angeles County population of over 10 million people. And within that 1.6%, there's a large number of indigenous uh, peoples that are homeless and displaced. And, and so what is the next step from here? What comes next? Yeah, so it's As far as the commission work goes, A, we recently released this report and video and sort of homelessness landing page on our um, website. So um, that's just sort of an announcement of, hey, this is what we're doing. We hope to form a homelessness task force, although it's difficult, again, as we alluded to, to find all of the resources and the manpower and the people (laughs) to be able to do these things, but we hope to be launching it soon because we definitely want to center our community's desires and needs. We are also working internally as a commission to strategize on how we want to start making that sort of external push on our public agencies. Um, And so um, we're deciding what key leaders and agencies are important to contact and sort of form alliances with. And then we have some uh, qualitative interviews that we still need to analyze and we'll just keep, you know, putting data up on our webpage as those um, become available and we'll just hope to push out more infographics and um, do more community education and sort of bring in more of those best practices to our community to show them that this is actually possible. So we started um, by bringing Colleen Echohawk down to talk in December and we hope to form more of those partnerships and um, bring them in um, in the coming months. And that was Dr. Andrea Garcia speaking on Indigenous homelessness and displacement in Los Angeles County, California. She is an appointed commissioner for the Los Angeles City American Indian Commission, a physician specialist for the Los Angeles Department of Mental Health, and a board member for the United American Involvement Center in downtown Los Angeles. 
You're listening to American Indian Airwaves County Radio. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. song by Buffy St. Marie off the album Power in the Blood here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. In the final segment of today's show, we continue our conversation on homelessness and displacement of indigenous peoples. We go to Pacoima, California, where I speak with Trini Rodriguez. She is a poet and co-founder of Tia Chucha's Cultural Center and Bookstore in Pacoima, California, and she's one of the principal organizers of the April 9, 2019 Poor People's Campaign public hearing on homelessness in Pacoima, California. This is Trini Rodriguez on the public hearing on homelessness in Pacoima, California. We're, we're happy to say that very soon on April 9th, a Tuesday evening from 6 to 9, we'll be having a Pacoima public hearing on homelessness and poverty. And it will take place at Telfair Elementary School, which is um, in Pacoima, California. And the reason we're having this hearing is because, well, for, for many reasons, but uh, recently the LA Times pointed out that uh, an article pointed out that one out of four students at Telfair Elementary School are homeless. And that struck home because I went to that school and our family grew up in Pacoima. And so it was uh, quite striking to me that that level of homelessness has now reached that level in our community. And when we talk about children being homeless, that obviously means the parents are homeless. And I I know for listeners and, and our 
in the previous interview, we were talking about indigenous homelessness in LA County and, and how, mm-hmm. and, and of course these figures are underrepresented, but the yeah, indigenous yeah. population in LA County is like 1.6% of the entire Los Angeles County uh, uh, population. And then the indigenous homelessness rate is like three tenths of a percent of the entire homelessness rate. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about, um, you know, these children that are homeless and how that relates to indigenous peoples and in who else is helping you organize for this public hearing? Um, I'm glad you, you asked that question because there is a very clear connection between the type of treatment that the indigenous populations have had in the past and continue to, well, the impact that it continues to have on them, their levels of homelessness, because of the displacement, the original displacement from their lands is the policy that basically is now applying to all of us. The privatization of land has meant that we all are subject to the whims of the market and and it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with housing people. It's, it's about uh, how much can be made to have people buy a space on land, which is what we're doing when we do uh, try to meet the kind of rents and, and mortgages that, that we're being asked to pay. So it's not a stretch to say that, that the kind of treatment that, that the indigenous, you know, first peoples of this country have had is now really reaching everybody, in fact. So, and if if we're still in our housing, a lot of times it's because we have to to have quite a few jobs to to make that happen, and and it's it's not a secure um, housing market. It's not secure for anyone. Trini, who are some of the organizations that the Poor People's Campaign is working with for this public hearing on April 9th in Pacoima, and what can the public expect for this open public hearing? Well, we're partnering with a number of organizations here in the Valley, and one with the Achuchas Centro Cultural, but also with Pacoima Beautiful, which is an organization that uh, was started by five mothers over 40 years ago, I believe, and they were addressing the issues of um, just the, the environment, the environmental injustice, basically, in Pacoima, a very poor, low-income community. And also men will be having some of the people that are on the bus tour across California. They'll be having a tour with them as well. MEND is an organization in the Valley that their initials stand for Meet Each Need with Dignity. And so it does address a lot of the housing insecurity, financial insecurity that this population faces. And uh, also the Fernandeño Tatavian Band of Mission Indians, they will also be making us all aware of, again, the the historical roots of of the problem of homelessness and poverty. And we're reaching out to a lot of the Calpulis, which are Mexica indigenous, Mexican indigenous uh, based groups that work with community to bring them together in ceremony, but also with purpose. So those are some of the organizations that we're working with here in San Fernando Valley. And what we can expect to to hear is people basically telling their stories and their and also their solutions of what the impact of poverty is on them, whether it's uh you know, lack of access to medical care or or even, uh, you know, the high levels of uh, student debt if they try to go for education as a way out of poverty. So many different things. And of course, the main focus is on the, the issue of housing and homelessness. But poverty takes a lot of different forms. And when we talk about 
the public hearing and the people that will be testifying. What's going to happen to those testimonials? Well, it's our hope that because we have invited our representatives here in the Valley, our elected representatives, we hope that they take to heart some of the, well, not some, but all of the, the comments to know how important it is to address the problems in a not just a short range, but in a long range sense, given that these are systemic problems. They're not going away. They're not easy problems to solve, but they, they are going to call for us to be brave and stand up and state things the way they are and for our elected officials to also stand and do for us what we elected them to do. For listeners that want more information and want to uh, come and and participate in the public hearing uh, this coming April 9th, um, is there a Facebook site or a website that people can mm-hmm. go to? Yes, if they go to California Poor People's Campaign on Facebook and then search for Pacoima Public Hearing, the information will be all there. Again, it's on Tuesday, April 9th from 6 to 9 at Telfair Elementary School in Pacoima. And also that if people want to know more about the Poor People's Campaign, that's just a matter of uh, also searching it up at poorpeoplescampaign.org. Well, that way people can, can know what's happening across the country because this is not just happening in Pacoima that people are organizing uh, where impacted people are wanting to have some voice and some say in the policies that uh, will change their lives. And so that's, again, it's a national call for moral revival is what the Poor People's Campaign is. You are talking about the high number of children that are homeless, and that means the parents are homeless too. And we forget that homelessness is a human rights issue. Yes, yes, definitely. Without a home, it's very hard to have some kind of stability. And that's so basic, so basic to human beings to be able to say that they have a place to come home to, to rest, to rejuvenate, to gather, to be with family in a safe space. And without that, it just undermines mental health. It, it undermines your emotional stability. So many things, you're physically, you're, you're, exposed to the elements, which can be, of course, extreme heat, extreme cold. You're, you're open to, to more um, health issues from disease and, and just ill health because we don't have a, if there's not a proper setting to take care of yourself. So yes, housing is a, a very, very basic human right. Trini, any final thoughts regarding the this coming April 9th uh, public hearing on homelessness and displacement in Pacoima, California? I'm looking forward to it, and I'm hoping that, and thank you so much for having me on your show, because it, this is an important time where we have so many things uh, coming at us, and the news every day seems to be showing us that, that the responses that we need are not happening. That means we're going to have to, to speak up for ourselves and, and shape the direction that this country goes, one that does take us into account and does attend to our human rights. And that's why we feel that this is an important meeting, uh, hearing, and we're we're hoping for a lot more people to become aware and active in shaping the solutions to what they face. The moment of silence is over. And that was Trini Rodriguez, one of the principal organizers for the forthcoming Poor People's Campaign public hearing in Pacoima, California on April 9th. For more information, you can visit their Facebook event site. 
And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, Dr. Andrea Garcia and Trini Rodriguez. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Tracy Lee Nelson, Buffy St. Marie, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves County Radio is mixed and mastered in the studio of Barnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. Silence is over.